Hi, it's Greg Dalton. I'd like to hear your comments on the show, topics we should cover, and guest suggestions. You can reach me at greg at climateone.org. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Many corporations are pledging to hit net zero emissions, but critics say these pledges are often mere greenwashing. And there's a lot of scams out there. What stops a a guy that owns a big forest to sell his forest five times to different uh, companies uh, and just say like, oh, I'm going to keep these trees going for you or else they would have been cut down. There's a lot of projects out there and there's a lot of room for growth. It's again, how do we verify it? Proponents say we'll never reach the Paris climate goals without corporations taking action and pledges represent ambition and commitment. We have programs going to continue to be better, put out a pretty honest and comprehensive sustainability report every year. I'd argue we're probably our hardest critics. It's not a PR exercise to try to tell people how good we are. It's uh, trying to be as honest as possible and tell ourselves and the world where we're actually at. So how can consumers, investors, and policy leaders determine if these pledges are genuine attempts at hitting net zero goals? And is it possible for third-party auditors to hold companies accountable? I invited three guests to discuss these questions. Simon Fishweiker, head of corporations and supply chains for Carbon Disclosure Project North America. Christina Partsinevelos, a CNBC reporter covering ESG and net zero pledges. And Daryl Stickler, global head for environmental sustainability at Cisco Systems. This episode was supported in part by our friends at the Errol Foundation. In our conversation, we use a few terms that I want to quickly unpack. First, ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance, refers to a set of standards that companies and investors use to assess how well a company is doing in these areas. ETFs, or exchange-traded funds, are a type of security like mutual funds, but they can be traded within the day like a stock on an exchange. We also talk a lot about emissions, which are classified into three levels. Scope 1, which come directly from the company's activities. Scope 2, emissions from the energy used to power the company. And Scope 3, emissions, which are those from activities further down the supply chain. These aren't controlled by the company directly, but are still part of its overall carbon footprint, like how a product is used and disposed of at the end of its life. One-fifth of the world's 2,000 largest publicly traded firms have committed to net-zero targets. I asked Christina Partsinevelos if that is legitimately good news and how important such targets are for decarbonizing the global economy. No, of course it's good news because finally corporations are making part of their mandates, making a priority. They've created chief sustainability officers. They have people in positions to try to uh, work on reducing emissions, improve their supply chains so they're not as harmful to the environment. Having said that, there's the positive. I guess the negative is that a lot of it out there, or not a lot of it, some of it out there is a form of greenwashing where corporations are making these goals, but they're not providing us with the steps of us to how they're going to achieve net zero by 2050 or by 2060 or 2040. And so there are still kinks that need to be worked out because this is still somewhat of a, a nascent industry when you're talking about having corporations actually commit to it. And this is the first time we're really seeing that. And so it's great. It could really change the way things are going in the next you know, 10 to 15 years for future generations. But uh, there still needs to be a lot more details worked out. Sure. And a lot of this is, is voluntary. And we'll drill into those pledges in a moment. Simon, how do you see the symbolism of giant corporations all jumping on the net zero bandwagon? As Christina mentioned, something we haven't seen before. Yeah, I want to acknowledge the importance of the momentum this is creating and the conversation that is 
move to talking actually about net zero emissions. I think if you think about five years ago, before the Paris Agreement was signed at COP21, I think this was uh, a dream for those of us in the environmental field to have this level of conversation. The challenge is around the standardization of what those net zero pledges are and the, the lack of short to medium term steps, science-based targets that are going to keep us on a trajectory towards cutting emissions, not in 2045, but having them in the next decade. Daryl Stickler is a person with climate responsibility at a company with $50 billion in sales. What do you look for when you see a corporation says they're going net zero? They're coming out all the time. You're an insider. What, how do you give them the kick the tires or give them the sniff test? So I, I do look at the announcements and there's a lot to unpack there because some of it gets technical, you know, about the various types of emissions. But the first thing I look for is what's the scope of the, the, the commitment. I look to see, one, is all of a company's activities included in the scope? And, and the next is I look for some evidence that they understand what net zero means. If I see too many use of the word offset, I scratch my head and then I start to dig a little deeper. What does offset mean? Simon, companies can play around with their expenses and net income in order to avoid taxes, all sorts of ways to do that. Money is tangible, trackable. Carbon dioxide is this odorless and invisible gas. So how much confidence should we have in companies tracking and eliminating this odorless, invisible gas? I think that's a, that's a great question, and it leads us to some of the problems, particularly on the scope three side of net zero, where it is difficult to actually calculate those emissions because much of that is coming outside of, of a company's boundaries. However, uh, when I think about my own organization and how we look at a company, you need to have at least 70% of your scope one and two, those direct operational emissions, externally verified to be on our A-list. And what that means is it's sort of like getting your audited financials, right? You're having a third party come in and check your work and identify that the emissions you're providing are actually accurate. And so I think that's a really important signal to the marketplace that you're providing accurate emissions to your stakeholders. When we get into scope three, I think that's a little bit more of the challenging area because you're relying on your supplier emissions or uh, estimations, perhaps, if you're thinking about an automobile manufacturer, they might be calculating emissions based on the use of their cars with people driving them. There's a lot of factors that come into getting that number exactly right. The issue right now, that number is so big, what we really need is to make it uh, go down significantly. So maybe not getting too wrapped up in the, the exact number at this point. Christina, does this kind of, these kind of things, do they move stock prices? Or is this, you know, just kind of a niche thing that real insiders talk about? You know, does this really drive news? Does it drive stock prices? If you are purposely investing in ESG-related ETFs and funds like that, and maybe there seems to be new data coming out for that particular fund, maybe. But in general, uh, unfortunately, at this point, no, unless there's a huge environmental disaster, then you would have a, a huge movement in the stock price. But what we've seen now is, yes, we're talking about it and it's great, but there's still it's still not priority number one. Like it's not really moving a score of, you know, not moving the needle that much when it comes to a stock price, especially when there's so many various ESG scores. So, uh, and I know uh, Simon was alluding to that and how we'll get into it, but it's, we're not there yet. And ESG is environmental social governance, and we'll unpack that a little bit. Simon, 
Many companies publicly say they support climate action or a carbon tax, and their lobbyists privately work really hard to make sure that that doesn't happen. Uh, we've seen that recently with companies saying these net zero pledges, but they're they're uh, lobbying against the, the the energy bills or, or infrastructure packages, perhaps because it raises taxes uh, to raise money for those clean energy investments. So does Carbon Disclosure Project or CDP track corporate lobbying? So the companies, there's some kind of accountability for what they say publicly and what they do in the halls of Washington. Yeah. Ultimately, CDP is a voluntary reporting uh, effort and disclosure system. And so, you know, we may not be directly tracking that and digging into their efforts, but we do have a component of our questionnaire that addresses public policy engagement where companies are reporting on alignment with different industry organization positions on climate they may be a part of and meant to be discussing which public policy they may be supporting or sort of unsure of. And so it's a good reference point if, if you're looking at a company's public CDP disclosure and looking at their policy engagement and how they're discussing their work with resource organizations or industry groups to check that to some of the news you're hearing and dig a little bit deeper into whether or not that's actually consistent with what their climate positions they're saying are. So, Christina, how much credibility do you put in these kinds of voluntary unaudited uh, disclosures. Well, because my follow-up question to Simon would have been right there. So then who is the third party? Do you have one particular third party that you're using or are firms using a bunch of different ones? And then then it begs the question as to how they are, what methodology are they using? And it, it's, it's and like, I'm just chat, like asking you yeah, the question. No, it's not yeah. trying to be, but, you know, a pain in the butt, but uh, it seems to be a common problem with uh, the rating firms, uh, the carbon offset, the voluntary carbon, carbon offset uh, platforms that are out there. It's just there's so many different people doing it that there's no set methodology. And so how do you guys deal with that? Yeah, CDP has been around for 20 years and our goal has been the same in, in that entire time to provide a standardized comparable mechanism for tracking not only emissions from a quantitative perspective, but that full spectrum of climate management, right? Uh, and so from a, a verification perspective, we're not dictating which firm a company needs to work with, but we're dictating what information needs to be provided as part of that verification. Daryl Stickler, you know, Cisco plans to reach net zero emissions by 2040, a decade ahead of many companies. Are you going to have a third party auditor uh, look at those uh, numbers? And, and why should anyone believe Cisco when there's so much greenwashing going on? And it's not clear that there's a cop on the beat, right? Yeah, I, I think we're overstating greenwash. Greenwash is an issue for sure. But there's a lot of companies that are putting a lot of money and attention and top talent into this issue of carbon accounting. So to get a little technical, so there's a scope one, two, and three emissions. And let me just start with scope one and two. We use a third party. There's a couple. So the large financial companies, the accounting firms, they do this auditing as well as specialized environmental consultancies. And they issue formal letters of you know, their assurance and the scope and so forth. And we publish ours on our website. We've set a number of public goals, environment goals since 2008. And we've always had a policy that if we have a public goal, we're going to get third-party assurance because we recognized early on that us saying something 
Well, we, we would hope that people would believe us, but the truth is, is they want to have that third-party assurance. And in the next six months, uh, corporations will have to start submitting their proposals to an organization. This gets kind of technical, but it's the Science-Based Target Initiative. So there's this organization that companies will report to. Is that starting to get in the direction, uh, Daryl? And you know, what does that mean for companies that might be kind of you know inflating their numbers? So SBTI is a an organization that gets the goals right. And if you go to their website, you'll see there's hundreds, maybe even thousands of companies whose goals are registered with SBTI. And you get registered there by submitting lots of information. It's very painful. It took us about four months to meet all their information requirements. And they say that, yes, your scope, your wording, your intent meets the requirements. They publish guidelines. And there's a similar thing for net zero. They just came out last month. Don't know the official title, but it's basically net zero guidelines by SBTI. And you can go in there and read. If you want to say that you have a net zero goal that's SBTI approved, this is what it has to entail. So that's what SBTI is for, to make sure that these goals are properly framed. So, so things are, we're kind of in this very early days, starting to get some organizations and some, some early standards. Uh, Christina, some companies say they're aiming for carbon neutral rather than net zero. As someone who carefully examines numbers and parses words issued by corporations, how do you see the emerging terminology of this conversation? Well, I think they're, just like Daryl mentioned, it's going to probably have to come from some platform that everyone is using. And if they come out with a definition, then finally we'll get uh, uh, something that's concrete. You have the SEC that's looking into it, but there's no federal mandates. I know the EU has more stringent rules. Uh, somebody needs to come out with uh, proper terminology. I don't know when that's going to happen, even when I'm researching and writing a story or doing this on air. The amount of definitions that I could have used were ridiculous. And instead, I just went for a visual of like a circle of how we're going to how net zero is going to be defined. I don't know. I don't know who's going to come up with the definition. Somebody's got to make it official and then we can all start using the same one. But right now, yes, like you mentioned, there's carbon neutral. And I'm sure both Simon and Daryl can and speak more to the details of that or I guess the technical aspect of it, but it's not all the same. And companies know this, which is why they're picking in, not all, and I'm not greenwashing or saying that it's all greenwashing, but uh, the companies are sure to, to pick and choose how they word their marketing uh, statements or their promises to the uh, consumers. A lot of these pledges are made by CEOs who will not be in office when these pledges come due. So how are these companies held accountable and is executive pay tied to these commitments? This is something that's really, you know, an important role for CDP to play, where we have this voluntary disclosure where companies are reporting annually, not only making that commitment, getting the flashy lights with the announcement uh, in the news, they have to report on that annually when they commit to setting a science-based target or have a net zero target. And that mechanism that, that, that most companies use is their CDP disclosure. But if you really dig into it, it's not just hey, we have this ambitious target and we're reporting on it annually, but actually looking into governance structures and saying, is there uh, a board level oversight of climate change at this company? Does the CEO have compensation tied to the achievement of this science-based target? And we have seen some companies, I think HP Inc. is one example, uh, Canadian National Railway, where in their disclosure, they're saying, we have a science-based target and our executive compensation is tied to achieving that science-based target. Um, obviously, that still runs into the, the problem that net zero by 2050 is, is, is none of our current CEOs' uh, immediate problem. And that's where setting that short 
to midterm science-based target that reduces emissions in the next five to 10 years in line with that trajectory towards managing a, a 1.5 degree warming or sort of avoiding the most dangerous aspects of climate change today, not just in 2050 is key. Daryl Stickler, uh, Cisco used to get dinged for not having board oversight over sustainability. It now does. Is the pay of you, your pay and other Cisco executives tied to reaching carbon reduction goals at Cisco? So the financial community has been increasing its uh, attention to sustainability. I don't know if people remember um, the SIP, Sustainable Investing. There was a special subset of analysts that just focused on sustainability. And that acronym, see, I can't even remember what it is, it went away because now sustainability is mainstream. So the financial community has just been ramping up. So Cisco added social responsibility, which includes ESG, to our nomination and governance committee, remit. And last year, our FY21 ended in July. So now our executives, the named executives, have ESG as one of their, um, it's called individual performance factor. It's one of the things where they multiply these factors together to come up with the cash bonus or cash compensation. And so ESG is now part of the named executive's compensation. Just for the social part, don't you find it difficult to measure that even within Cisco? I, just because it's quite qualitative versus quantitative? Well, I know the inclusion and diversity is very quantitative because we publish multiple tables breaking down our employee base different ways, uh, you know, by gender, you know, by minority at different levels of the company. But the whole trick of this whole sustainability, ESG, corporate responsibility is to figure out how to take it from subjective and put some numbers against it so you can set goals and measure your performance. Some, some people overstate it to maybe um, dismiss it, but a lot of sustainability is finding hidden value. You know, when you look at diversity, for example, that can be taken to an extreme. But the truth is, is you want to understand your customers. You want to maximize your access to different suppliers. You want to have a very diverse employee base because you have a very diverse customer base. These are all things that are good for the business. I, I tell people, hey, listen, if you want to hug trees, go work for a nonprofit. If you want to take on the challenge of figuring out how to fit sustainability profitably into business, come work for a big company. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about corporate pledges to hit net zero emissions. Coming up, the squishy calculations of net zero goals that rely on carbon offsets. I think offsets and building a market around offsets has a really important role. If someone's net zero pledge is heavily reliant on offsets to get from today to where their net zero commitment uh, has them in the future, to me, the, without those standards, that's, that's very problematic. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey, everyone. I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. 
We're talking about corporate net zero emission pledges with Simon Fishweiker, head of corporations and supply chains for Carbon Disclosure Project North America. Christina Partsenevelos, a CNBC reporter covering ESG and net zero pledges. And Daryl Stickler, global lead for environmental sustainability at Cisco Systems. I asked Simon Fishweiker to tell us about the stocks. That's spelled S-T-O-X-X, the Stocks Climate Change Leadership Index, another tool to help gauge a company's carbon-cutting goals. This is a, an index uh, that, that's actually uh, used CDP data to create a several ESG-focused indices. And one in particular is the Climate Change Leadership Index that actually maps CDP's A-list and over a five-year period outperformed its global benchmark, which was a sort of global index of about 1,800 companies by 5.4%. Correlation, causation, can't can't say for sure. And I, I do think that companies that tend to do well on, on CDP disclosure, A-list companies tend to be well-managed businesses who are thinking about all elements of their business and managing those well. But I think it does send that good signal to the market that if you're investing in companies that are managing ESG issues uh, at the top of their class, they're likely to be managing across the business uh, as well. Simon, what role are institutional shareholders playing in pressing companies to cut their carbon pollution and possibly aim for zero? Because there's a lot of move now for BlackRock and others trying to press companies. It's a critical role, and it's it's one that has driven us to, to much of the point that we're in now. CDP was actually founded on the idea that you could use the power of the capital markets to get companies to actually disclose on, on climate change, which is 20 years ago was sort of an unfathomable idea and now has become something that 590 institutional investors with over $100 trillion in assets – uh, are, are working alongside companies to 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 in their supply chains that have now activated thirteen thousand companies reporting on climate change around the world. So it's really important to get that conversation started. In, in particular, I think you've seen sort of the the power of shareholder advocacy and, and uh, shareholder resolutions to drive major change. And I think that's where large asset managers can play a, a really big role, as they tend to you know be the the biggest uh, elephant in the room when it comes to 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 make making a, a resolution kind of go through or not. And, and on the, the science-based target and net zero side, we've actually, through CDP, started a campaign that has over 200 investors now calling on companies who have yet to set a short to medium-term science-based target, encouraging them to do so. So definitely something that the investment community is interested in and pushing directly for, for companies to, to do. Christina, the word net in there implies the possible use of carbon offsets, planting a tree or protecting forests or doing something else, you know, at another part of the world uh, that offsets the reductions that the, the corporation has. What do you think about carbon offsets and their relationship to these net zero pledges? Well, it's a market that's growing. It's uh, predicted to hit $1 billion in transactions this year alone, so it's the largest one. Uh, Microsoft, I think they bought 1.3 million carbon offsets themselves. So it's something that's not going away. Again, it goes back to the methodology used and who's going to be verifying how these carbon offsets, how the carbon is going to be removed from the air. Or not just, I know you just mentioned the trees, right? So that's the most commonly, like, yeah, it's an easy one, but there, um, even carbon capture, a lot of other methods are available, definitely more expensive. So are these projects, these financing of these projects going forward to help improve uh, the environment and remove carbon, was that something that wasn't going to happen 
had they not bought the carbon offsets. And so that's something that is still maybe a little bit murky out there. Um, yeah, some, and, some companies are getting paid for forests that were going to not be cut down anyway. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> like when I first started, and I'm still very new to this this world, you know, I was thinking, how, what stops a lot? And there's a lot of scams out there. What stops a, a guy that owns a big forest to sell his forest five times to different uh, companies uh, and just say like, oh, I'm going to keep these trees going for you or else they would have been cut down. I don't know. I just, there's, there's a lot of projects out there and there's a lot of room for growth. It's again, how do we verify it? Simon, similar things. You know, there's there's uh, no one standard uh, sort of verifying agency that says, okay, that forest is going to be living for 100 years. It won't burn. A lot of forests are burning down lately, uh, right? Offsets, you know, offsets. Your, your point there uh, to uh, Christina on, on the, the validity of offsets, which are companies relying on smoke and mirrors, literally. Look, I think offsets and building a market around offsets has a really important role. We need to bring all the tools out of the toolbox. But when we talk about net zero, if someone's net zero pledge is heavily reliant on offsets to get from today to where their net zero commitment uh, has them in the future, to me, the, without those standards, that's that's very problematic. But also, in general, what we're looking for with net zero is for companies to abate their emissions by 90 to 95 percent of that net zero from their own value chain emissions, whether direct operations or supply chain. And it really should be that last mile, that last five or 10 percent that's neutralized by offsets. That doesn't mean that during the process of reaching net zero, you can complement the efforts you're making as a company to reduce your value chain emissions and your operational emissions with offsets that help compensate for the emissions that you're you're already uh, kind of producing. But those shouldn't be considered uh, hand in hand with your trajectory to net zero. And I think that's because of many of the issues that, that Christina is raising. Daryl Stickler, what's to prevent a company, say that the company makes a uh, batteries and they say, oh, we've reduced our emissions by X amount. And then the the company that makes the cars or the iPhones that uses those batteries also claims those carbon reductions. What's to prevent double counting in the supply chain? We've seen lots of disruptions in the global supply chain during COVID. What's to prevent double counting? Well, yeah, I think net zero is going to rationalize this because net zero is kind of a good pandemic. When our customers, when Cisco's customers set a net zero goal, I think the first thing they do is pick up the phone and call us because our customers can't be net zero if we're not net zero. And then we turn around and we can't be net zero unless our suppliers are net zero because part of our footprint is what it takes to make our products and transport them and get them to the customers. So it becomes more of a partnership and not gamesmanship. Chevron recently announced a, quote, pathway to net zero. Bloomberg ran a story that said that falls short of plans uh, by its competitors like BP and Royal Dutch Shell, which have specific targets to eliminate emissions by 2050. Simon, how can a company selling oil and gas emit zero carbon pollution? Well, I think that's also where we we get into the conversation of offsets, right? And and and. What are we actually talking about in terms of the boundary of emissions as well, right? Does that boundary of zero emissions just relate to operations and reducing methane emissions and, and moving to sort of renewable power? Or is it also talking about the use of the sole product, right? Because I think if we're talking about use of sole product and, and that sort of indirect emissions, those scope three emissions, that's where it would be impossible 
unless there's an actual business model transition. And so I think Daryl or Christina earlier maybe mentioned another issue is boundary. What are we talking about when we're talking about net zero? And that's where we do need the standardization so that people can say, oh, this company's only talking about this one thing. That's great, but it doesn't mean net zero because they should be talking about the full value chain. Christina, there is socially constructed silence around climate change. It's often put in the category of taboo topics such as religion, sex, politics. How much do analysts, investors talk about climate risk if they don't bring it up? Do you think it's, do you get the sense it's kind of like, oh, we'd rather not talk about that? No, because it's become so part of the daily lexicon, especially when you're talking about a firm and their ESG scores, it's definitely, it's not as taboo as it once was. Maybe if you were to ask the question, you know, who's responsible for the earth warming and all that, I don't want to get into that, but then that's maybe where you'd get some people with different opinions. But in terms of emissions and mentioning, uh, look at all the Hurricane Ida, look at all the damages that we've seen just over the last little while. I think on average, it's been, it's cost uh, the, the globe $84 billion dollars just because of these hardcore storms that we're seeing and they are increasing in their capacity. And so that's something we can't ignore. We can't ignore the damage uh, and what this means for corporations and humans and people and how we can fix that going forward. It's still not topic number one, unfortunately, on everybody's radar, but uh, it's definitely being spoken about a lot more. What about the fact that companies that have the largest profits are usually the ones that are willing to invest in environmental, social and governance and ESG? There is a correlation with companies that are well managed and their management of, of some of these uh, ESG or environmental, social governance issues, right? We're competitive uh, in, in all aspects, if we're a well-managed business. And so there is, um, you know, if you're, if you're doing well in managing your business, there is the possibility that it also means that you're managing ESG issues, but, but would love other, you know, I think Daryl from the first hand might be interesting to hear from you on that. Yeah. So, I mean, big companies have an advantage that they can spread the cost of a sustainability function over, over more revenue. So you look at, uh, the big tech companies, Cisco, Apple, Microsoft, you know, Amazon, they, they all have really large and very competent sustainability functions. And for whatever reason, maybe it's the ethos of, of the technology sector, but they are committed to address the problems. Like there's no greenwash there that I see in the tech sector. So like I said, I, it, it, it really just goes back to business. I, I was listening, you, know, you mentioned renewables, and I was talking to our facilities manager who buys all our power and it's not costing us money to use low-carbon electricity. He's able to do PPAs and so forth. And this is the challenge of working in a for-profit company. You know, that price signal pushes efficiency. And so he says, it's, you know, it's good. Now, I don't know whether it's going to scale if everybody's going to go to 100% low-carbon electricity, if that's going to pan out, because maybe there's some break point out there. But right now, it's not costing us money. Aren't we often confused or we haven't determined yet is this a company performs well with a high ESG score because they have promised to make these uh, follow through with these ESG goals or is it because they already were a good performer in the beginning and because they were a good performer then they can provide you know transparency for ESG so i is, is it because People, companies are making a promise to, to do better and they are doing better, or is it because they were, you know, wealthy beforehand and now have the capabilities to do better? I always view those scores that you get 
as a combination of reporting and performance. Sometimes you score poorly because you can't get the people in the proper business functions to spend the time at the time that is needed so that we can actually tell the outside world what we're doing internally. So that's a reporting issue. And then there's actually the performance issue where you don't score well and you look at it and you talk to the rating agency and you go, oh, we have to improve our performance. I'd like to get Christina's response to a recent tweet from NASA scientist Peter Kalmus, whose handle is at Climate Human. He wrote, quote, politicians consider banks too big to fail, but don't apply that same thinking to our Earth, end quote. So what, do you, what does that say about how government and regulators are handling systemic risk? If banks are too big to fail, but the planetary system is not considered too big to fail. Well, because we... <laughs> We were in a situation not too long ago where banks came close or certain ones and did fail. Um, unfortunately, you can't have that situation with Earth. And so because it's something that we have never really seen, we've seen the damage to the Earth, it's hard to be uh, to to apply that exact same mentality. We should. But uh, unfortunately, uh, if Earth were to fail, then we wouldn't. We wouldn't be here right now. And so I think it's a matter of just becoming more and more proactive and with politicians, um, you know, thinking more long term as opposed to just the the term of their, uh, you know, how long they're going to be on Capitol Hill or wherever. So I, it's it's a great point from the NASA tweet guy. That, that's, yeah. <laughs> Climate human. All right. Last word, uh, Peter and and, and Daryl, as we wrap up, you know, you think this is going to can capitalism reform itself and, and make these make these changes that are necessary, Daryl, and then Simon? Oh, I don't think capitalism has to reform itself. I think we just, I, I think it's the answer. I'm, I'm a big fan of free markets and the price signal and, and you know, clear and concise regulation. Uh, but I think, uh, I think we have what it takes. Simon? Yeah, I, I think that uh, I'm also just a believer in, in humans, uh, and I think that we have what it takes as a, as a species to, to, to protect our, ourselves, really, because uh, the planet will, will figure itself out at a later date. And so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic, uh, cautiously, and, and we have, I think, the tools in the toolbox. Uh, so it's, it's more about activating them, and to Christina's point, maybe you know, taking this a bit more seriously and acting like we've been through uh, a too big to fail moment and, and still still here. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic and, and it's been a great part uh, to hear to hear everyone's perspectives on this call makes me even more so. Today, we're talking about pledges by corporations to achieve net zero emissions. Coming up, we hear from Mike Cannon Brooks, the co-founder and co-CEO of tech company Atlassian on working to export renewable power from Australia. We have a lot of desert. We have a lot of sunshine. We're the sunniest, windiest countries in the world. And we only have 25 million people, but we have 3 billion consumers to the north in Asia. A huge part of our economy should be becoming a renewable energy superpower. What's up next when Climate One continues? Mike Cannon-Brooks is the co-founder and co-CEO of Atlassian, a collaboration software company. Atlassian recently announced that it's bumping up its own net zero pledge by 10 years, from 2050 to 2040. Cannon Brooks is also a driving force behind Sun Cable, a company creating one of the world's largest solar farms and battery storage facilities in Northern Australia. The goal is to supply the cities of Darwin and Singapore with reliable and affordable renewable electricity, transmitted through more than 4,000 kilometers of submarine cable. 
In 2019, 21% of Australia's forests burned in a single summer. An estimated 3 billion animals were killed. I asked Cannon Brooks how that climate experience hit home for him. That was very hard to see. We were in Sydney for a part of that. And then as it continued to go, we actually went to visit my wife's folks in Michigan. So we watched a little bit of it remotely and obviously had a lot of friends. It was it was incredible being in the city when we were in Sydney and the kids, like sport was canceled. They couldn't be outside. There was so much smoke around. You sort of think about these things like bushfires happening a long way away from you. And it was like right up in, you know, Sydney affected the, the, the center of the city. And then as it spread down the coast uh, through the, the couple of weeks, you know, we live on a farm a couple hours south of Sydney and, and it was pretty close to the farm uh, at, a, at a number of times. A number of nearby villages were sort of almost completely wiped out. And then when it started to spread to Malakuta and the coastline areas, it sort of went through the sort of four or five different megafires that formed. If you haven't seen the footage of the residents sort of fleeing to the beach and the just red yeah. wall behind them and they all got in mm. boats and watched, it was just mm. staggering to to watch for anyone to watch. So it was very, very hard to see. And then you, know, you had a lot of people, you know, fleeing to emergency shelters. And I feel very sorry for a lot of the people who lost their homes and things for obvious reasons, just any disaster is bad. But of course, we then sort of rolled straight into the pandemic. So it was almost like the world forgot about them a little bit, which mm. I always felt mm -hmm. was very, very hard for them. But um, look, it was, it was brutal and obviously a huge reminder of uh, why we're all here. Then in 2020, California experienced its worst wildfire season ever, which reminds me, uh, years ago, I interviewed Tim Flannery, the Australian scientist and author of The Weathermakers, and he told me what happens in Australia, fires, droughts, is going to come to California. And he certainly was right. In 2020, that happened with over four and a half million acres burned. Put that in perspective, in that Australian summer, 59 million acres burned. What was the reaction to that from the Australian government? Look, the government reaction was mixed, I think it's probably the fairest thing to say. Certainly the, the prime minister leaving for a holiday to Hawaii has become a symbol of sort of abandoning one's post in, uh, in, a, in a crisis. I think there was, there was obviously a lot of attempts at uh, you know, emergency relief and things like that. Depends on how far you take the government, but the, the Rural Fire Service and all of the fire volunteers... The Royal Fire Service here is almost entirely volunteer run. And so, you know, there was a massive community effort to help and people working, you know, 20 hour days for, for weeks on end fighting fires as volunteers. So we should commend them. There was sort of almost an instant then controversy in the government about whether this was climate change or whether it was arson or this or that. And of course, we know now that uh, next to none of it was actually arson or human started in any way, shape or form. And it's generally accepted, I would say, that climate change has obviously made it worse, made the fires hotter and faster and more difficult to deal with. It doesn't mean the government's done a lot about climate change from an Australian perspective. Uh, it's sort of always one of our challenges, but at least it's, it's generally acknowledged that climate change made it worse. And obviously since then, we've had uh, droughts and floods and hurricanes and all sorts of things. So we've had a, we've had a fair few years of natural disasters. And unfortunately, I expect it to, to get more, obviously. Yeah, and even question whether they are natural disasters. They're not really natural, are they? If, uh, well, that's if, true. Yeah, humans are driving them. Have these disasters caused Australia to to question its dependence on coal and to 
perhaps transition away from coal? I know that's something you've been advocating for. Look, I think it's it's hard to answer on behalf of the whole country. Obviously, from a economic point of view, we are the third largest exporter of fossil fuels in the world after Russia and Saudi Arabia. So it's not really a club that you want to be a member of. We are the number one or number two exporter of coal and the number one or number two exporter of liquefied natural gas and a bit of oil thrown in there and other things. So yes, this is is part of the reason why we have such a challenge in Australia. Coal is certainly from a usage point of view is slowly disappearing from our energy grid. We have long had very cheap coal. So that is, um, I think on an inexorable slide, the question is how quickly can we do that? And could we do it faster than natural resistance is doing it relatively slowly? I, I certainly believe we could do it a lot faster than we are currently doing. From an export point of view, look, I don't hold a lot of hope that we are going to limit our exports. We are determined as a country not to count scope three emissions, uh, which is our exported goods. You know, generally, I think the best approach there to, to limit those exports is number one, we need to find alternative exports before our customers stop buying things. Our largest customers in Japan and Korea and other countries, um, even Indonesia, have clearly telegraphed that they are going to stop buying our coal and they have their own internal targets for their country. So our customers are going to make those decisions for us. I think sometimes the narrative inside the country is that we we have some sort of choice in this matter and we forget that we're you know, selling to customers and the customers are going to stop buying it and we should be ready for that. And you can sort of see that in the lack of new supply opening up, which is good. There are far less new mines being opened um, because they're, they're largely non-economic for a 40-year investment. The other thing that I think is is really important there is to show other potentials for export. So from an economic point of view, telling people to just shut down coal obviously creates a lot of drama around jobs and uh, GDP loss and things like that. And so we need to create other export industries that can replace that income. Uh, I am a big believer that we can continue to export energy from Australia in various different forms. It just won't be as a, a fossil fuel form, which we've been doing since the 60s and 70s in a, in a major way, um, and has certainly driven a lot of the growth of the Australian economy. But uh, I don't think we can continue to export fossil fuels, obviously. Sure. Especially when, when governments are slow to act, how important do you think it is to have corporate net zero targets for tar- decarbonizing the global economy? And how much credence do we put in voluntary pledges by CEOs who won't be held accountable when these dates come to be? Look, I think it's really important that we work out the accountability mechanisms there. There's a few of those. Firstly, you can still have management teams judged on making progress. You can judge the CEO on the progress they should make in the first five years or 10 years Mm -hmm. or some period that they will be in there and also how the plans are going. And that can be part of compensation as a lot of companies are doing. Secondly, the investor community has a lot to do here. When you see ESG as an investing style, annual general meetings and various uh, shareholder requests for more information about climate plans. Often they're quite obfuscated in terms of what's actually happening, what's actually going on with emissions. I think the investor and shareholder pressure makes a big difference. And that's also from other parts of the finance community. So we see that insurance, you know, the a cost of capital, so any sort of lenders or debt, there are a lot of other financial instruments that actually make a big difference. And companies are seeing that if they do not have good ESG targets, you know, their cost of capital goes up, which makes them less competitive. That all makes a, a significant difference. 
I think the other one is to make sure that if they use credits, we're going to need some form of credits. I always sort of think that's that's a last 10% of the problem. We can solve 90% of the problem with technologies we have today, but we may need some sort of credit system for the last 10%. I think the more auditable and you know public and verifiable those credits are, we're seeing a lot of what I would call dodgy credit usage here, especially in like the gas industry and some other areas where it's just not, as I would say in Australia, it's just not fair income the way that they're, that they're using those credits, right? They should really avoid emissions that would otherwise be put into the atmosphere or actively be you know, compensating or removing emissions. A lot of the credits are actually not doing that yet. And do you feel the same way about offsets? Because credits and offsets are not the same thing. Credits are like, oh, I'm, you know, some renewable power is out there already. I'm going to claim part of it for my goals, even though it, I'm not really adding to the supply. Do you feel the same way about offsets? Because that's another tool that many companies turn to uh, as a convenient way to, to um, perhaps pretend they're solving a problem when it's a little less clear they're actually doing it. Yes, I think that whole credits and offsets, right? What, what's required is really as open and public information about what it is that you're doing and then using all of the various standards bodies to try to make sure that those are, are valid ones. And I can tell you in Australia, we have a few incredibly dodgy ones, anything around sort of guaranteed land use, non-change. And I'm like, wait, so there's a piece of land there. You're going to claim some goodness that you can continue to export some form of emission because you are going to buy the land and not touch it, but it was already there kind of thing. Like there's a lot of these things where you don't actually, you know, <laughs> pay me uh, to pay me to not emissions. cut down trees. Yeah. Right. It's that's yes, known as the yes. pay me to, to not cut down trees. I wasn't going to cut down anyways. <laughs> that's, that's right. So we have a fair, a fair bit of that. The other one that's worrying to me when it comes to the, especially the gas industry in Australia is using offsets to increase production, which isn't exactly what we were meaning to do with those. <laughs> that is a big problem. Like, oh, because of these offsets, I can increase this. So I'm going to, you know, pull a lot more out and I'm going to claim the offsets of something. It's like, well, if you didn't pull it out, you wouldn't even need to claim those those offsets or credits in order to do that. That's very, very uh, concerning. The other one is the time shifting of credits, which I really worry about. I'm not sure if the same thing happens with offsets. I guess it could where they, they're going to buy something in 2040 for something they are doing today, which you know, future buying of those things, I also think is, is probably not, you know, not, not going to help the problem. You know, at, at last thing, as you mentioned, recently announced it's moving forward its net zero goals by 10 years from 2050 to 2040. Google says it's been net zero since 2007, probably a lot of uh, renewable energy credits in there. So you have hit your goal of 100% renewable power across all your operations, five years ahead of your earlier target. Mm -hmm. So what would keep Atlassian from getting to net zero sooner than 2040? Some of our suppliers. So uh, we are looking through transportation is a challenge for us. We have a lot of international flights, commuting, and how employees get to and from work and measuring that and working out how we can make that better over time. Things like electric vehicles and other things will come to help that. I mean, we could buy some sort of credit today, but it's not, it's not really going to actually solve the problem. We're big in favor of actually solving the problem yeah. properly. And then our suppliers, so some of the uh, software that we use or hardware suppliers that we use, like uh, Amazon AWS, for example, is a big uh, one of our biggest suppliers. So we run a lot of our software in the cloud on top of AWS. AWS is has a 2040 goal. So they're kind of one of our longest poles. We've worked with them a lot. They're doing great work to green, I guess you'd say, all of their data centers and cloud offerings. So some of the challenge for us is those suppliers down the line. 
Yeah, well, Amazon was late to the party on sustainability. It used to run Netflix and Amazon Web Services used to run on lots of coal, and uh, they've they're moving on that lately, thanks in part to internal uh, employee pressure. So mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you announced this moving forward from 2050 to 2040, around the same time as announcing a 30% increase in quarterly revenue. What's the correlation there between growing revenue and reducing carbon emissions. Did you have to can you only do this when when times are good? Are you planning to do this when when times are tough as well? Uh look, we we think about sustainability as a core part of our business and we're a a very long-term thinking company. And sustainability, I don't just mean environmental sustainability, right? Mm-hmm. We are a business that relies on customers and various communities and employees and and a planet and we need all of those things to be sustainable in the long term. So when we think about uh, everything from diversity and inclusion to the philanthropy we have in the Atlassian Foundation through to our environmental and climate things, it's all with a lens of long-term sustainability, right? We want to be a good partner to all of the groups and communities and, and environments that we live in as a company. And we believe that is the best for our business, right? We don't want to be a, a parasitic business in any kind of a way on any of those type of areas. We have programs going on all of those to continue to be better. We put out a pretty honest and comprehensive sustainability report every year. I'd argue we're probably our hardest critics. It's not a PR exercise to try to tell people how good we are. It's uh, trying mm-hmm. to be as honest as possible and tell ourselves and the world where we're actually at. And and we put that into our sustainability report. This stuff's hard. And we try to help others learn by saying, hey, here's where we've moved forward this year. Here's some areas we've moved backward. You know, Here's what we learned and here's what we're going to try. And uh, we release that every year. Uh, I don't think it can be just when times are good. In fact, business is growing 30%. You're actually working against yourself uh, Mm -hmm. every year because you you create a bigger and bigger problem. So um, the (laughs) earlier we can tackle that and the more systemically we can structurally tackle that, I think the the better off that we will be to actually get there. And again, we have an SBT, so a science-based targets initiative target, approved plan by them. took about a year and a bit to get the plan approved. So it's very, very comprehensive. Uh, I think a lot of, you said CEOs just declare these pledges and there's not really a plan. There's a couple of graphs and charts and stuff and that's it. Whereas, you know, we have a big plan of each area of the business and each thing is very thought through and it's like approved and they they kind of audit that every year. Um, the SBTI uh, does a, a fantastic job that I would encourage any other company to go through and they help you with your plan, right? They tell you where it's not valid. The Sun Cable Project, also known as the Australia-Asia PowerLink, aims to produce up to 20 gigawatts of solar power in northern Australia and export a big chunk of it to Singapore via high-voltage direct current cable. You mentioned Australia continuing to be an energy exporter, but not a fossil fuel exporter. I think you may have been talking about this. Construction is scheduled to begin in 2024, uh, what will be the world's largest solar array, nearly 10 times bigger than the current largest. How are you going to get this through? Is, is the you know fossil fuel friendly uh, Australia national government uh, <laughs> supporting this or trying to uh, throw tax in the road for you on this? Oh, uh, no. The, to, to be fair, the government, the government has been really supportive of uh, Sun Cable. So Sun Cable is a, a company that's trying to build um, transnational and international uh, high-voltage DC cables and power infrastructure. As you mentioned, mm-hmm. the AAPL, the Australian Asian Power Link, is our first cable project that is going from the Northern Territory of Australia. It's 125 square kilometers. So I don't know what that is in miles, but a lot, it's a lot, <laughs> a lot of square miles uh, of, of space in the desert. Uh, and then cable up to Darwin and then 3,000-odd Ks or 2,200 miles, something like that, 
from Darwin through the Indonesian islands to Singapore, it'll be about 20 to 25% of Singapore's power will come from solar energy. It's a very power hungry country for 5 million people odd. That is obviously very first world, very sophisticated, a lot of buildings and air conditioning and all sorts of things and has very limited space. So it can't really generate its own renewable energy. Right now, its entire grid runs off imported gas, largely. It's a really strategic thing for Australia, I would argue, to prove that we can do this. Uh, One of the reasons I'm so involved uh, actively is to prove that there are other ways to export energy from Australia to the rest of the world. We have a lot of desert. We have a lot of sunshine. We're the sunniest, windiest countries in the world. And we only have 25 million people. But we have 3 billion consumers to the north in Asia. So if we can connect that sun and wind to those 3 billion consumers, it can be a big economic export for Australia. A huge part of our economy should be becoming a renewable energy superpower. And what I say by that is exporting that power to, to largely to Asia, some via cable directly. Uh, I think we'll export some as hydrogen or some sort of form, uh, ammonia, something like that. And lastly, by uh, higher value goods. So we should remember that a cheap energy price in Australia, largely backed by massive renewables, uh, our energy here is getting cheaper every single year as the renewable proportion in the grid goes up. Um, so we're really proving that fact that renewables are actually reducing everybody in Australia's price of power. That means certain manufacturing, uh, aluminium smelters, iron ore refining, all sorts of other things that we can do to ship higher value goods onshore with our cheap energy means effectively a, a better export industry for Australia in whatever that good is. So those are the probably the three main manners. But yes, Sun, Sun Cable's AAPL is, a, is an incredibly ambitious world-scale project, but we're, uh, we're going to get it done. Hmm, okay. So the idea is to not export sun energy rather than coal energy to that huge market to the north of you with uh, all those you know, thriving Asian economies. I have a number of different projects going on here, uh, like Sun Cable, large-scale projects to demonstrate. We call them lighthouse projects in, uh, in my family office. So it's a lighthouse project because it shows the way. You know, we are uh, a lot of technology investors and entrepreneurs trying to build the Sun Cable project, and the team is very uh, entrepreneurial. If it works, I would imagine there are 5, 10, 50 cables over the next 10 to 20 years that are probably built by classical infrastructure companies who have a path lit for them, if you see what I mean, to to show how these projects can be done, how they can be profitable. And that's great. That's good for climate, right? It's good to show traditional businesses how to do this. Look, you need all parts of society. I'm a big believer that far too much of the responsibility is put on individuals and that corporations and governments and industries, regions should all play a part and all need to do what they can do. Corporate net zero targets, as long as they are science-based, Atlassian, the the company I'm the co-CEO of, we have a science-based target that we just brought forward from 2050 to 2040 with a very thorough plan covering all the parts of the business and all the things that we're doing. So it should be a science-based target if you're a corporation, and it should also have interim milestones and can be externally judged and audited. If you do all of those things, then I applaud your corporate net zero target. Far too many corporate net zero targets do not include scope three, uh, the customer's use of their products or their suppliers uh, upstream or downstream, which uh, I don't I don't think is a, is a fair or valid target. I don't think corporations can do it alone, but I think they certainly have a, a huge role to play here in, in changing, as you said, a lot of the demand economics and, and showing examples of what can happen. 
Mike, thanks for sharing your insights and your leadership on Climate One today. I really appreciate it. people like, out, like you out there fighting on all those fronts. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. Mike Cannon-Brooks is co-founder and co-CEO of Atlassian, a collaboration software company. Today on Climate One, we've been discussing how to vet and trust corporate net zero pledges. This episode was supported in part by our friends at the Errol Foundation. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be difficult, sometimes depressing and awkward, but it's critical to address the climate emergency. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review, or better yet, telling a friend. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Ariana Brocious and Austin Cologne are our audio editors and producers. Our audio engineer is Arnav Gupta. Our team also includes Steve Fox, Kelly Pennington, and Tyler Reed. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>